Well, please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning we will be considering verses 16 through 21. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Both that passage that we read for our call to worship in 1 Timothy 3 and this passage in 2 Peter 1 are the foundational texts for the truth that we will soon confess in the third article of the Belgic Confession. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please also look with me in your order of worship at the confessional reading element. Uh, This morning, we are confessing together as the people of God the third article of the Belgic Confession. Again, this Belgic Confession serves as one of our confessional documents. It, It gives us sort of the mountain peaks of Scripture, those main doctrines, those main teachings that we should hang our hats on, as it were, and and focus, especially focus our attention on as Christians and as pilgrims. So this morning we'll be confessing together Belgic Confession, Article 3. Well, people of God, what do you confess about the Word of God? We confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. Afterwards, our God, because of the special care he has for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed word to writing. He himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. Let us pray and ask that the Lord would bless our consideration of his word this morning. Merciful Father, we do thank you that you have made yourself known to us. You have revealed yourself to us in the book of creation, the book of creation which serves as this most elegant book in which your creatures are like characters, words that point 
to your holy and divine existence and majesty. But we thank you most of all that you have revealed yourself to us in in your word, Holy Scripture, and that in your word we come to know of your one plan of salvation fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that you would continue to confirm upon our hearts who you say we are through the word of your gospel. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, boys and girls, if you remember back uh, to the first article of our Belgic Confession, what are we to do with our hearts according, yes, Marcus? Believe with our hearts, and what are we to do with our mouths? Annabelle? We are to confess with our mouths, yes, and the Belgic Confession is quoting from Romans 10, where Paul says that we are to believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Now, boys and girls, what is God according to that first article? Annalise? He, good, yes. Single, simple, spiritual. Uh, the three S's. God is a single, simple, and spiritual being. And last of all, how do we know God? There are two ways in which we know God. How do we know God? Yes. Scripture and creation. Yes, God reveals himself in two main ways, scripture and creation. And the Belgian Confession uses the analogy of a book to describe creation. Creation is like a book in which all of creation serve as words that point us to some of the attributes of God, namely his divinity, his power, his glory, and his benevolence. And so today, in Article 3, the Belgic Confession is tra- uh, um, transitioning to a consideration of that second way in which we know God, namely through his word, through the scriptures, through the Bible. And so the question that we are considering this morning is, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? The book that most, if not all of us, have, the 66 books of the canon of Scripture. What is the Bible? Is it merely a human book or is it a divine book? Is it the Word of man or is it the Word of God? What is the Bible? Now, there are many people today who appreciate Scripture. Uh, They appreciate Scripture as one of the, the great books of the canon of Western literature. Uh, there are many people who appreciate the, the moral maxims of, of Scripture. Some, probably not all, but some of the, the moral truths that we can deduce from the stories of Scripture. However, the assertion that every word in the 66 books of Scripture are true and inspired by God, that is an increasingly controversial controversial and unpopular claim, even among Christians, that every word within the 66 books of Scripture are true and inspired by God. This, indeed, is what we confess in Belgic Confession Article 3. We confess that the Bible, the Word of God, is inspired. It's not ultimately the Word of men, it's the Word of God. This is a divine book. It's a holy and divine book as this article concludes. Now, when we say that the Bible is inspired, 
we mean that the, the Bible is inspired in its original autographs, meaning in the original manuscripts of the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic. And this is an important distinction to make. This means that, strictly speaking, our English Bibles are not themselves inspired. Rather, the way in which we should think about our English Bibles is that they faithfully, and yet at times imperfectly, reflect the inspired Word of God which resides in the original manuscripts of the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. This is why we can have healthy debates and discussions about what Bible translations we should use, ESV or RSV or NASB or NIV. Not one Bible translation is inspired. Rather, they faithfully and at times imperfectly reflect the inspired Word of God which is found in the original manuscripts of the original languages. And so this morning, instead of going deeper into these classic texts of 1 Timothy 3 or 2 Peter 1, I'd like to give uh, another explanation or another defense for the inspiration of Scripture that centers upon the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we would do well to, to consider these classic texts, but I think it is good to, to, to go beyond these classic texts and consider other arguments and explanations for the inspiration of the Word of God. And so this morning, I'd like us to briefly focus our attention on three points. The first, uh, the first two are questions. So first, we're going to consider, what was Jesus' view of Scripture? What was Jesus' view of the Bible? Second, we'll consider why we should even care about Jesus' view of Scripture. And then last of all, we're going to consider how Jesus' identity serves as a very helpful analogy for the character of the written word. Jesus' identity serves as a very helpful analogy for the character of the written word of God. So first of all, what was Jesus' view of Scripture? What was Jesus' view of Scripture? Well, we see in the Gospels that Jesus believed the Old Testament, the Old Testament books, the Old Testament writings, to be the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. We know in the Gospels that Jesus believed that he himself spoke the very Word of God. And we also see in the Gospels that Jesus believed that the future apostolic witness, that is to say, the writings of the apostles, were also the inspired word of God. Now in the Gospels, Jesus oftentimes uses the phrase, it is written, to introduce a quotation from the Old Testament. And when Jesus is using this phrase, it is written, he is signaling to us that he is now appealing to the highest form of authority he could appeal to. The Old Testament. This suggests that Jesus believed that the Old Testament itself was authoritative. It wasn't merely the word of man. We also see throughout the Gospels that Jesus actually believed in the veracity of the Old Testament. So, for instance, we witness Jesus' belief in Jonah, from the book of Jonah, that Jonah actually was swallowed by a whale and vomited up onto dry ground. Jesus believes in the historicity and veracity of the story of Jonah, which we recently uh, finished considering. We know that Jesus believed from Genesis 2 that God established marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, we see that Jesus believed 
from Genesis 19 that God actually destroyed the ancient city of Sodom. We witness that Jesus actually believed from Genesis 7 that God flooded the, the earth and the world in Noah's day. So we see in many, many different instances that Jesus actually believed the Old Testament. He believed the Old Testament to be the word of God, to be the inspired word of God. We also see that Jesus claimed that he himself came with God's word. He was the true prophet of God. He spoke the word of Yahweh to the people of God. So for instance, in John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Jesus didn't come with his own words. He came with his Father's words. He came with the word of God, and therefore Jesus' words are inspired. And he fully and firmly believed that. We also see that Jesus believed that the future writings of the apostles would also be inspired. In John chapter 16, which comes in Jesus' upper room discourse. So his last teachings to his disciples before he will be crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven. And Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, that he will, in a very short time, send to them the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who will lead the disciples into all truth. It is the Holy Spirit who will take what is Christ's and declare it to them. It is the Holy Spirit who will inspire their witness so that it becomes the inspired word of God. Indeed, in Acts 1.8, which is really Jesus' last words to his disciples before he will ascend into heaven at the right hand of his Father, he tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This holy inspired apostolic witness includes the New Testament. It's the Spirit who takes the word of Christ and speaks that word in and through the disciples. So Jesus believed. He believed that the apostles would continue to do his ministry to do his ministry specifically in revealing more of God's book of special revelation. And so Jesus believed. He believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God, the Old Testament, his words, and the future witness of the apostles. Now, at the end of the day, why should we care? Why should we care what Jesus' view of Scripture was in the first place? Why should we care what Jesus' view of Scripture was? Well, the reason why we should care what Jesus' view of Scripture was is because he proved through his resurrection that his view of Scripture was the correct view of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul speaks about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul says that if Christ had not risen from the dead, our preaching would be in vain. Our preaching would not be what I said it 
what Genesis 1 and, and Paul in Romans chapter 4 says that it is, as I reflected upon earlier this morning. It wouldn't be the authoritative, creative word of God. It would simply be a lecture. Paul says that if Christ had not risen from the dead, our faith would be in vain. Paul says that if Christ had not risen from the dead, we would be misrepresenting God. If Christ had not been risen from the dead, we would still be in our sins. Indeed, Paul continues and says, if Christ had not risen from the dead, we would have hope in this life only and would be the most pitiable of all people. Now, what implication you can make from what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that if Christ had not risen from the dead, then the Bible, the scriptures, would merely be a really old book that has stood the test of time, but not anything that's categorically different than the works of Plato or Cicero or Aristotle. Just another great book in the canon of Western literature. However, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then Jesus was who he said he was. Then his view of Scripture is the correct view of Scripture. The logical conclusion from that would then be for us to adopt his view of Scripture. One author puts it this way. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This really is the most important consideration for us, and there really isn't any middle ground. There really isn't any category for affirming some of Scripture as being the inspired Word of God, but other aspects of Scripture as not being the inspired Word of God. Either it's all inspired or none of it's inspired. Either Jesus did rise from the dead or he didn't rise from the dead. Thus, the reason why we should care about Jesus' view of Scripture is because he rose from the dead proving, proving that his view of Scripture is the correct view of Scripture. Now, last of all, I'd like to conclude, or, uh, conclude by considering how Jesus' identity serves as an analogy for us to think about the character of Scripture. So Jesus' identity serves as an analogy for the character of Scripture. Now, there are really three forms of the Word of God. You can think of God's word as the incarnate word. The word took on flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. You can think of the word as the written word, the inscripturated word of God. And you can also think of the sacramental word, which is the preaching of the word, through which God speaks us all into his new creation. And so here, I'd like to think about the similarity between the incarnate word and the written word, between the identity of Jesus and the character of Scripture. Now, these two manifestations of God's word relate in this way. God's revelation to us in his word, whether it be in Christ, the incarnate word, or Scripture, God's revelation to us in his word is clothed in the weakness of human form. God's revelation to us in his word is clothed in the weakness of human form. God's revelation to us in his word is clothed in the garments, you could say, of human form. 
So think for a moment of the incarnate word of, of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God himself. He is the second person of the Trinity, but yet he condescended to us by taking upon himself the form of a human. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was found as a baby in a manger. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, found himself as an infant who needed to draw nourishment from his mother's breast. God's majesty took on the form of human weakness and frailty. And so it is with the written word of God. God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God takes on the form of human language, the frailty of human language. God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God takes on the weakness and frailty of human language. You know, some of the early church fathers were criticized by opponents of the Christian faith. They were criticized because According to their perspective, the Bible wasn't all that stylistic. It wasn't literarily beautiful like the other great classic works in Greek and Latin. And so there is that human element to the scriptures, just as there was that, that real human element to the humanity of Christ. So God, or the incarnate word, took upon himself flesh, and the written word, the scripture, took upon itself the flesh, the flesh of human language. And so there is a real identity analogy between the incarnate word and the written word. And so how? How did the scriptures, how did God's written word come in written form, take on the form of human language? Well, just as, you know, at times God dictated his word to his messengers, this especially happened in the times of the prophets. God would oftentimes dictate what he wanted his prophets to say and to write and to speak. And in this way, God's revelation mirrors that first form of speech that we considered in Genesis chapter 1. Let there be and there was. But other times, God used and employed the specific backgrounds of his messengers. And we see this specifically with the apostles. God used this, the, the, the specific and distinct um, backgrounds, their education, their their cultural context, and their personal experiences in the writing of Scripture. So think of Luke chapter 1. We see that Luke went, uh, set about to write an orderly account, an orderly account from the testimony he received from eyewitnesses. He made use of these sources as a careful historian would make use of sources. We see that the author of the Hebrews was a very educated individual as he writes very stylistic and beautiful Greek. John writes very simple and plain Greek. He likely knew Greek as a second language. And so God made use of the specific backgrounds of his messengers to write scripture. So sometimes it was dictated. Sometimes he made use of the specific backgrounds of his apostles and messengers. And thus this corresponds with that second form of speech that we see in Genesis 1, where God says, let the earth bring forth. And the earth brought forth vegetation and trees planting or producing fruit. And so too, God essentially said, let the apostles bring forth. It was still God's speech. It was still God's inspired word, but he made use of the particular uh, talents and abilities and education and background of his apostles. And so in summary, 
we see that Jesus believed that the Bible, the scriptures, are the inspired and errant and fallible word of God. We see that we should care about Jesus' view of scripture because he rose from the dead, proving to us that his view is the correct view. And last of all, we see that Jesus' identity serves as a very helpful, helpful analogy to the character of the written word. Now, if we believe what we confess here, if we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, how should this belief affect our view of family devotions, catechesis of our children if we have children? How should this, this belief affect our view of the church and what's important within the church? How should this belief affect our view of preaching and norm and regulate our expectations for the preaching of the word. We all live relatively inconsistent lives when it comes to our beliefs and practices. And so we would do well to consider in what ways are our beliefs, what we confess here in Article Chapter 3, inconsistent with our practice, our practice throughout our ordinary daily lives. Well, in the subsequent weeks, we will turn our attention to other aspects of the written word of God. We'll consider the canon of scripture and how the canon was developed and how it ever was decided that we would have 66 books in scripture. We'll consider the sufficiency of scripture. Is scripture sufficient and what is it sufficient for? Um, and, and at the conclusion of that, we'll also consider uh, the authority of scripture. Uh, the, the, the scriptures are authoritative within the word of God, within the church of Jesus Christ for faith and life. So let us pray.